Are you ready for God's word? So, we have been in the middle of a sermon series entitled The Jesus Story. And so we're just going to get into Jesus and his life and what he's all about. And uh, I want to I ask you to consider something with me. When you think of an artist or a writer or a poet or any of these creative type um, these creative type disciplines or, or even someone that makes things with their hands, a sculptor or a, a, a welder or, or a carpenter, they put, it's been said that an artist puts a lot of themselves into their work. It's also been said that you can tell a lot about an artist by their work. You can tell if they're whimsical. You can tell if they're serious, if it's dark. You can tell if it's full of hope and light. You can tell a lot because the truth is the artist's personality leaks out or permeates from their work. And so I want to ask you, what does the work of the awesome creator tell you about our awesome Savior King? You say, but who are we talking about? Are we talking about God the Father? No, no, listen. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he tells us throughout Scripture that 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 creation was done by none other than Jesus Christ, specifically in the book of Colossians when Paul says all things were created, what? By him and for him. And he alone is supreme. How many of you remember that, that message I preached some time ago on an Easter Sunday where I wore the supreme hat? You remember supreme was a big deal for some of you going, I have no idea what supreme is. That means you're over 30. <laughs> but for those that are under 30, you know what supreme is and it's a brand and they don't sell in traditional ways. They put their merchandise out there on the web on a certain day. It's called a drop date. And then you have to be online and there's limited quantity. And so there's a mad rush online to get the quantity. And so I had to sit there and wait for that drop because I wanted that hat for the sermon illustration. I had to do it just like all the other kids. And it's a pain. And I can remember getting the hat and coming out here going supreme. And the kids are like, oh, pastor's dope. What's up? And I'm like, yeah, you know, you know, that's how I float. No, I don't even know if I'm saying what I'm saying. I better be quiet. Before I get in trouble, right? But, but this is the thing. I had the hat and I was trying to say, preaching out of Colossians, all things were created for him, by him, because he is supreme. You think this is supreme? Let me show you who supreme is. Jesus Christ. And so when you look at the creator of all things, what does it say about him? You know, I look at, I look at my kids and we'll talk about more of my, my kids in a little bit, but I also look at these kittens that we have and we got the kittens because we found a huge water moccasin I'm not kidding you I have I have pictures to prove it it's about this long huge in my in our flower bed and so I did what any good Texan would do I chopped his head off that's what you do some people were like oh first service I said yeah you're not from here I get it but you're in Texas now you do as Texans do chop his head off so let's move on and uh, no, no, I'm serious. I got children. I don't want that, that poisonous snake biting my children or my animals or anything else or even my neighbors. I love y'all. Some of my neighbors are here. <laughs> and so, 
So we did that, but my wife had a brilliant idea. She said, we need a cat. Better yet, let's get two cats. How many of you know I'm not a cat person? But I've become a cat person. These cats, like, follow me. This little, she's completely black. We call her Matcha because she's black with beautiful green eyes. Solid black, green eyes. And she follows me like a dog. But it's the cutest thing, the way they fight and the way they wrestle and the way they hide in ambush. And just when the partner's coming by, they jump out and go, ah! And then the other one jumps on them and they just go round and round. And don't even give them, don't even mention giving them a uh, ping pong ball. They watch the ping pong ball and then they pounce on it and they throw it up in the air and then they get scared of it. I mean, it is beautiful. And I just sit and laugh and I'm going, oh my gosh. Did I have to teach them how to play? Did I say, hey, come here, sit down. This is what you do with a ping pong ball. You, you jump on it and you throw it up in the air and you hit it. And you just... No. How about the chipmunks that you enjoy on a beautiful snowy day or the, or the you know, chipmunks? We don't have chipmunks here. But how about the squirrels and the way they play for hours and all the fun that they have in the birds and the, and the deer frolicking in the woods and all of God's creation shows something about him that he is good that he is fun-loving and he is playful. God is a playful God. And today I want to highlight that for you. How about your kids? How many of you used to just enjoy watching your kids? And if you have little ones today, take in every moment because it goes like that. It goes like that. And I can, re- I can remember this time and I want to show you this. Maybe you've had similar moments. Turn it up a little. He got hurt. He's gonna get an action. Joshua, come on, let's don't do cartoon, let's do your handstand. Oh, do your one handstand. Don't do it that close. <laughs> Whoa, I didn't get you, I didn't get you. Woohoo! See everybody? Woohoo! I got some better from that side. Woohoo! This <laughs> awesome. I mean, they could play like this for hours. Hang in there. It's going to get better even. And then he denies kicking her in the face. You'll hear it in a minute, but go ahead. (laughs) 
mean, how many of you have had those moments? How many of you remember your children? How many of you remember you playing with your brother or sister? You know, those are beautiful moments. Can I tell you, no one had to teach you. God created you that way. God created such. And he says to his disciples, he says, look at this child. Look at these children. If you want to know what faith is like, you need to consider the child. If you want to know what heaven's like for us, such is the kingdom of heaven. That means we were, we were created by a playful, awesome, beautiful God. I want to share a couple more things with you that as we talk about the playful, beautiful, fun-loving nature of God, of Jesus Christ, we're going we're gonna to contrast that against religiosity and the poisonous, dangerous nature of religiosity. You say, but I thought Jesus came to make us religious. No, Jesus came to connect us with the Father. He didn't come to make us religious. And so I want to share a story with you and it's at the very end of Jesus's ministry. Now, I'm going to jump around some. And my wife said, you need to be clear in sharing with them where you're at. Now, we're going to talk about an experience the disciples had with their master after he was crucified and rose from the dead. It was a week after his resurrection. About a week. It was before he ascended into heaven, which he'll ultimately ascend into heaven and take his place at the right hand of the Father where he is today, but he is coming back for us. He is coming back for us. And so the scene, the scene opens up with the disciples fishing, and we find it in John 21. So read with me out of John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. That's important, the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, of Zebedee, which are James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon told them. And they said, wait, we'll go with you. So they all went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered him. He said, then throw your nets from one side to the right side or the other side of the boat, and you will find some fish. When they did that, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples, then the disciple who Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net of fish, right? Towing the net of fish to shore for they were not far they were about 100 yards away. When they got there or landed, they saw a fire of burning coals where there were some fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you caught. So Simon climbed back into the boat and he dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 to be precise. But even with so many, the net was not torn. These are all significant little details. We'll talk about them in a second. The net was not torn. Jesus said to them, 
come have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them. That's another detail. Can you imagine grabbing the bread and going, just like he had done about a week ago, and gave it to them along with some fish. This was now the third time they had seen Jesus appear to them since he had raised from the dead. So what is happening? I want you to consider this as we set the stage. Jesus It's been about a week since Jesus kind of strolled or sauntered out of the grave. Think about it. He just kind of walked right out. And he's been appearing and reappearing and disappearing to all his friends and loved ones. And he's he's showing them that he's alive, that he's conquered death. And so this has taken place and you you have this casual nature of Jesus as he enters into the scene. And his friends, his very best friends, don't recognize him. And so he stands on the seashore. And I want you to consider one thing with me before we move any further. This is the resurrected king of glory. He has just conquered death, defeated Satan, gotten the deed to earth back. And he has gone to the Father. He has made all things right. He is back with his disciples. I mean, this is... The, the, the bright and morning star. I mean, think about it. He could have stepped onto that seashore shining bright as the morning sun. Like, oh, you know, angels singing. Oh, I mean, it could have been amazing. But instead, he decides to have a little fun with his friends. The boys have gone fishing and he decides to have a little fun. I want you to think about who he is. I want you to think about Mount. Uh, the mountain of transfiguration. Some of you are going, what's the mountain of transfiguration? Or how about Isaiah 6 or Revelations 19 where Jesus comes on a white horse or he's sitting on the throne. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in the throne of his robe, filled the temple or the mountain of transfiguration where he goes up on the mountain and he shows the disciples a glimmer of who he's going to be in glory. But instead, he comes incognito and he strolls onto the beach, just casual-like, as he's observing his boys and his friends, and he's saying, I wonder when I can make myself known to them. And he starts a fire, and he does this thing, and then he does what any would-be tourist does, right? Or any passerby. What do they usually ask fishermen? Caught anything? Now, before we go any further, let's make two things clear. What do you think Jesus' mood is? Oh, it's one of absolute jubilee. He's just done all that we said, conquered death, made everything right. I can imagine he's about to reveal himself to his friends. I bet he is just, just beaming with glee and kind of just, I can't wait for them to know. I can't wait to talk to them. But what do you think his disciples' mood is? Now they're fishing, they're trying to take their mind off of what has just transpired. See, the last week has been the most gut-wrenching week in human history. They started off with the triumphal entry. We're talking about Palm Sunday before resurrection, a week before, resu- I mean, before crucifixion. You have Palm Sunday, or, and you have, you have palm branches being waved, people shouting, exclaiming, Hosanna, glory to be to God in the highest, claiming that he's the king. 
only to have things start to go downhill very quickly. Jesus starts to proclaim his death and talk about the things that were to transpire. The disciples are confused and are trying to grasp it all. They find themselves at a dinner, a last supper, he claims, where he breaks bread, of which now he is breaking bread, very similar, reminding them of that day. And he says, this is my body, which will be broken. This will represent my blood that will be shed. He washes their feet. They end up in Gethsemane. I mean, things are going so quick this week. They don't know what to make of it. Now they're in Gethsemane and they're praying and they're falling asleep. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you to stay awake with me? Why can't you wake? And they see him sweating drops of blood. I mean, this is agonizing. And as they're trying to get their heads around this, they have guards burst into the garden and they arrest him. And now he's been arrested, falsely accused. He's been put on trial. He's been transported back and forth between the Romans and the Jews only to be convicted of crimes he didn't commit, tortured, executed, and entombed all within hours. And they're sitting there completely despondent, only to have him appear twice to them. So they have a little bit of hope, but they have more questions than they can possibly have answers for. And they're not knowing where he went, when he'll be reappearing, or what they're to do next. All they know is that I'm tired of sitting here doing nothing. I can't take it anymore. So Peter does what any self-respecting fisherman would do. When they want to clear their head, they go. Says, I can't take it anymore. I'm going fishing. The guys go, great idea. So you can imagine they go to a familiar spot because most fishermen when they're down on their luck they go to a familiar honey hole don't they so here they are on this lake again but I want to remind you of something something that goes back in time here it's at the end of Jesus's ministry after three years Jesus is about to ascend into heaven where he will take his seat but I want to go back to Luke chapter 5 In Luke chapter 5, you have the similar seashore, the same lake. They're fishing again. And Jesus unsuspectingly reveals himself to them in a playful way. So watch this. You have Jesus some three years later on the beach. He sees Peter and the boys Mending their nets for they had another bad night of fishing where they didn't catch anything. I don't know if Peter's a professional, but he fishes. All the time we see him, he's never catching anything <laughs> except without, with Jesus' help. But, but, but this is it. He's had a bad night of fishing. They're mending their nets. Jesus walks up to them and says, Peter, may I borrow your boat? He pushes out just a little bit. And from the boat, he preaches a sermon to the people. Now the people here, the noon sun is high in the sky. It's probably getting hot. Jesus is going to release the people, but not before he shows them something miraculous. He steps out of the boat. He looks over at Peter, who's finished mending and cleaning his nets, preparing them for the next day. Now it's been a rough night because he caught nothing. And he says to him, something kind of radical. He says, Peter, I want you to go out to the deep water. Put down your nets for a catch. Let's fast forward again to John 21. Similar shore, similar people involved. Jesus, you caught anything? No, of course you didn't. You never catch anything. (laughs) 
but I've got some ridiculous advice for you. Take it from the left side and put it on the right side. Maybe you'll catch something. I want you to think about this with me for a second. The boat is about this wide. I've seen it in the museum there off of the coast of, uh, of, of the Galilean Sea. In Galilee, there's a museum where they have a boat that they took from the bottom of the lake and they restored it and they have it there. It's not a very big boat and, and it's about this wide. The fish swim underneath. This is ridiculous. Can I tell you, it's not ridiculous. Jesus is being playful. Jesus is having a little fun. Let's go back in time where he first met them on that same lake, on that same shore. Jesus, the rabbi says, go to the deep water. You want to know what Peter's response was to him the first time? He says, oh, Lord, we've been fishing all night. We didn't catch anything. We kind of went through a lot of trouble of mending and cleaning our nets. Can we not do this? Kind of just real respectful because you don't, you, you don't embarrass a rabbi in front, of his teacher, in front of his students. And Jesus had a multitude there listening. So he says, Lord, I mean, not Lord, teacher, if you want me to, at your request, I'll go do this. What Peter is thinking is this is ridiculous because I know as a fisherman, you fish at night in the coolness of the night, the fish come up in the shallow. It's only in the shallow that we can truly get these fish or when they come up from the depth in the coolness of the night. Because we don't have hydraulics, we don't have pulleys, we don't have all of the modern technology to drop deep nets. So therefore we do it a certain way. The noonday sun is blazing down on the lake and guess what? The fish are too deep for us to even touch them. So I'm going to be wasting my time, but because the pastor said, I'll go do this. So he goes and does this and the fish start to, to flop into the net. The nets start to strain. The boats start to sink. There is a wow that sweeps across all the men that are fishing there that day. And can you see it with me? And so now let's fast forward again. They take the ridiculous advice. It actually works. And just like that, John says, I remember this. This seems very, very familiar. That's no ordinary man. That's Jesus. Just then, Peter jumps in, and evidently they were kind of fishing half naked. That's kind of a weird tidbit, right? He puts on his clothes around him, and he jumps in, he's thrashing towards the shore. But this has all the makings of an inside special memory or joke. You ever had a group of friends where y'all had these experiences and then you recount them and just like that, someone starts to, hey, remember when? And then the next person, oh my goodness, yeah, that was wonderful. You know, if you're drinking coffee, maybe when somebody snorts coffee through their noses, they start laughing and just going into it. And I can almost imagine they get to the shore and they're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is here. And he has breakfast prepared for them. They begin to sit down and they begin to talk. And the guys start to share 
start to share in the second encounter, maybe about the first encounters. They're sitting around the campfire. They go, hey, remember when Jesus first gave us that advice of what going into the deep? And Peter, the look on your face, man. You were like, well, Rabbi, I don't know. But the way he came back, guys, do you remember that? He looked like a little girl on the ground. My Lord, I'm a sinner. And they're laughing and having a great time. And Jesus is just enjoying it. I want you to consider something. All these appearances, where did Jesus not go first? He didn't go to the synagogue. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't go among the so-called religious. He's here with a bunch of fishermen. Having a great time. And incidentally, something else. The net did not break, even though there were large, huge number of fish. I wonder why. Maybe it's because God's trying to say, this is supernatural. I want you to know this is my son. You want to know something else? 153 fish. Do you find that interesting or ironic? That the, that the gospel writer would put the exact number of fish? Well, first of all, no, because fishermen count their fish. It's part of what they do. So think about this with me. How did this go? How did this look that day? The fishermen are standing around. They're enjoying Jesus' company. This is the king of glory that has just conquered death. They were despondent and down and completely downcast. And now they are riding high the winds of joy. And then somebody goes, well, I guess we got to count these fish. Who's going to do it? I'm not doing it. You do it. Oh, really? It's your turn. You got to do it. So he gets up and he goes over there and he's like, one. Why? Because every second that you spend counting a fish is a second you spend away from your king. And this is what, and I can almost imagine Jesus in his faithful nature goes, watch this. 153. He goes, yeah, they start high-fiving each other. My man, he's back. That's Jesus, amen? And they're having fun. And some of you are going, I don't know, I don't know. To me, the way you're portraying this, it kind of seems a little irreverent. I don't know if I like that. I don't know. Can I tell you, maybe this sec second story will help. Because throughout the ages, people have always tried to put Jesus in certain boxes and whatnot. But I want to just show you straight from the word of God some different encounters and how Jesus encountered the religious or the religiosity of the time. And as he encountered the religiosity of the time, you, you, he, he shows clearly that he considers it poisonous and dangerous. And we find this story in the book of Mark chapter three. Mark chapter three. This is towards the beginning of his ministry. So he's just stepping onto the scene and this is how he steps onto the scene. Think about this with me. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue. So Jesus initiates the encounter. Number one thing I want you to highlight. Jesus is initiating the encounter. He goes into the what? Place of religion. Not necessarily the place of worship. Somebody said, well, it's the place of worship. Worship can take place there, but it can also take place on that beach door. Amen? And so here we go. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled or deformed hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Who is them? The religious leaders. So they watched him very closely to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath. 
Jesus said to the man, with the shriveled, deformed hand, stand up and come up here to the front in front of everybody. I love that. He didn't leave him as a back row Baptist. He didn't say, hey, let's go back in the corner where no one sees us. He says, come on up here in the front. Everybody's wanting a spectacle. I'll give them one. Do you even see Jesus' fun, loving, playful nature even here? He's like, let's have some fun. We're going to make the grouchy more grouchy. Right? The grumpy, you're going to get more grumpy. It's going to be fun. Let's do this. And so he says, get up here. And then he asks them a question. He says, looking around, okay, uh, Jesus says, which is lawful? I'm I'm on verse four. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained very silent. They didn't know how to answer him. So he looked around and and with anger and deep distress, why was he angry and deep distressed? Because of their stubborn, hard hearts. He knew it. He could see them glaring at him. He could see if looks could kill. They wanted to kill him. And so this is what he does. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. And when the man stretched out his hand, it was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went and began to plot with the Herodians how to kill Jesus. I want you to consider this with me for a second. Why are they so been out of shape? Because it's the Sabbath. But isn't it Jesus who came and said, hey, I did not come to what? Abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So the law is to honor the Sabbath. For what reason do you honor the Sabbath? You don't honor the Sabbath for the Sabbath's sake. You honor the Sabbath for people's sake because it's the Sabbath that serves people in that it introduces them to an awesome, mighty God. The Sabbath quiets things down, brings you to a place of rest where you can reflect on God. And so I'm here on the Sabbath doing what the Sabbath was created to do, to honor and reflect and connect people to God for crying out loud, I am the son of God here to connect you with God. But you're so worried about a day. So I'm going to boom, blow your mind as I heal this man with a word and you're going to freak out and want to kill me. Now, I want you to highlight something with me for a second. Who did these skirmishes deal with? These, these unpredictable or maybe very predictable conflicts, they were all with the religious. As a matter of fact, not one example is with a pagan. It's always with religious people. You say, well, what about the Romans that killed them? It was set up by the religious The Romans were totally minding their own business, so they brought Jesus to them and forced the issue. Can I tell you something else? If you had never read the Bible and had no introduction to Christianity, and this this was your first introduction to Christianity, and you read the Bible with an unbiased, sincere heart, you would quickly pick up one thing for sure. There is a protagonist, which is the hero of the story. His name is Jesus. And there are antagonists, and they are religious in nature. They are the so-called spiritual religious. But I, I reject that word spiritual. Because the truth is, Jesus says in John chapter 4, when he's being scandalous yet again, and he's forcing the issue when he goes to a Samaritan city, and there by the well, he encounters a woman, which is a no-no in the Jewish culture. And he gets into relationship with her. What I mean by relationship, he gets to know her heart and shows her his heart. 
And as he's answering her questions about religion, this is what he says. Yet a time is coming and has now come where true worshipers. Notice it's not about religion, it's about worship. Connecting your heart with God's heart. He says where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. A time is coming and has now come. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I am here to show you the way. I'm here to show you the way. This is beautiful, guys. Why is it so beautiful? Because it shows what Jesus came to show us. He came to give us an experience, an experience that floods our life like a landslide of authenticity and fulfillment and joy. It connects us with the true, true purpose of life and why we were put on this earth. And that is the foundation by which all other purposes in our life have context and meaning. When we get to know Jesus, you're set at peace. So you say, okay, pastor, I, I, I don't know. I, I, are you sure? Oh, I'm sure. Read the Bible with me a little bit longer. I got a couple more verses, but first I want to share with you, if you think it's going to be easy to connect with Jesus just because you want to, then you've forgotten that there is a real, real enemy. And he is the arch enemy of Jesus Christ, and he's going to do everything he can to deceive you. He's going to fight tooth and nail to keep you from truly connecting with Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, something very, very important. He says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. To see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. What is God telling us here? He's saying that we have a real enemy. And he's going to do everything he can to deceive you. And the way he deceives you is he uses distortion. See, the Bible is saying here, there are spirits that will try to distort who Jesus really is. And many times you find it as a spirit of religiosity. So I want to ask you, how did you learn Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? We need to ask this question. Does it line up with God's word? Because it would be a shame if you have enthroned a false Jesus, an antichrist. Someone that you think, oh, Jesus would never approve of that or Jesus is this and Jesus is far off and it's hard to know him and we must reverence him. Yes, we must reverence him, but not to the point that we buy the lie that it's hard to know him, that we cannot relate to him and he cannot relate to us. In fact, that's the reason he came so that you could know him, so that you could relate to him and that you would know fully, wholeheartedly that he relates to you and he knows what you're going through. 
That is a lie from the enemy that tells you he does not know you. He does not know what you're going through. He is God and there's no way he could possibly understand the human condition. Jesus is saying, I was human. I am human. I came to this earth so that I might know exactly what you're going through. And in fact, I bore your, in, in your specific sin, the very thing and the very hardship and the very, the very thing you're going through now, I felt that on the cross. That is the spirit of truth. For a time is coming and has now come where Jesus wants worshipers that worship him in spirit and in truth. You say, so, so am I to believe that, that Jesus wants to be close to us? Not only believe it, but live by it. That Jesus, God in the flesh, came down to earth like a father that wants to kneel down after work and play with his children. And wrestle with his children. Come on, I can remember those times when Abby and Josh would attack me and I would be wrestling with it. I'd get them down, I'd hug them, and I'd squeeze them, and I'd just love all over their neck and just, just enjoy that. You know, that's what God wants for you. Do you want it? Because if you don't see God that way, then you're always going to keep him at arm's length. And God is saying, I didn't come to stay at arm's length. I came to show you I loved you this much. I hung on a cross and I'm Arms open wide saying, I love you, I need you, I, I want relationship with you. But so many times, we keep him at arm's length. Do you really want God's blessing? If you want God's blessing, then I want to remind you of one of our stories from last week. Jacob, who wanted God so bad, he was even lying, cheating, and stealing. God had to show him a couple things. So that's not how you get me, right? I'm going to show you the real me. But when he was ready to receive the real God, God came down in the flesh and wrestled with him. What a beautiful story. Amen? Wrestled with Jacob. So be careful of the spirit of Antichrist. You might say, but pastor, I get it. I get it. This spirit of religiosity is legalism. This is the spirit of thinking that that we have God figured out and Jesus isn't patient with this and he's not about that and we can, we, you know, the spirit of, of legalism that's always talking about the shouldn'ts and the don'ts and the rules and how we never measure up and how everyone is nothing but a worm and everyone is to, to repent and turn or burn. Yeah, that's part of it. But can I tell you, there's two slippery slopes on both sides of the narrow path. There's the spirit of legalism, but there's also this side, the spirit of license. See, Jesus said in that famous chapter, chapter three of John, for God so loved the world that he needed, what? Come on, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How about 17? Anyone know 17? For the Lord Jesus Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to what? give himself for the world and to save, to save. What does that mean? So God did not come to condemn, but he also didn't come to condone. This is license where you condone everything. Oh, everything is fine. Everything is fine. There's nothing wrong. You can do anything for all things are beneficial. No, Paul says, yes, grace covers all, but some things are harmful to you. They're harmful to your walk and they're harmful to other people's walk. So don't condone everything. Stick to God's word. It's a narrow path. There you will find life and light and joy and peace. You don't have to condemn others to make yourself feel better. You also don't have to be cheap on grace 
and condone everything. Grace isn't an excuse to live lower. It's a reason to live higher. Amen? Because when you truly understand how awesome and beautiful Jesus is, you know there's some things that don't honor him and don't bring others closer to him to confuse the issue and take society into a decay, and you don't want that. At the same time, you don't want to live condemning others. You want to live inviting others into the beautiful path of grace. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So let me finish with this. Is it truly possible to know him? Well, listen to what the Hebrew writer says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's our days. God said, I'm going down there myself. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation, not kind of, sort of, the exact representation of God. Watch this. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Okay. So in the past, God sent a message that didn't quite get through. Because he used human agents. And then God said, no, in the fullness of time, I'll go myself. Not as a representative, but the exact radiant, the exactness of who he is. Now, why does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters. Because in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, I'm reading from the message here. Listen to what the disciple John says. And he's talking for all the disciples, the guys who had breakfast with Jesus that day on the beach when Jesus was saying, watch this. Watch this. From the very first day, we were there taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. Verified it with our own hands. Could they be talking about that day? We touched the risen Lord. We remember three years of being there in the midst of his presence. Okay, the word of life appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in the most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredible, right? The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it, we heard it, and now we're telling you so that you can experience it along with us. Did you catch that? He's not saying so that you can take our word for it, so that you can believe us for it, so that you can have the same experience we had with the risen king of glory. That's what he's saying, so that you can experience it along with us, this experience of communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what they came to tell you. You can have a relationship with Jesus Christ just the same. As a matter of fact, Mark finishes his gospel with this. The things we did and the things we had, you will far surpass. So my question is simple. What Jesus did you learn? What Jesus do you know? 
If you don't think this is important, consider this. How many so-called Christians do we have around the world and yet live empty lives, never truly connecting with the beauty of the love of the Father that was expressed through Jesus Christ, his Son? Saying, our fathers, going to church or not going to church, having trouble and never really feeling like God knows them and they know God. Hey, I came to tell you, you can have Jesus Christ and all his wonder. You can. That's the reason he came. So if you're here today and you want to throw off the yoke of religiosity and say with all your heart, Lord, by your spirit, Remove those things that are not truthful about who my Savior is. And God, reveal to me by your Spirit the beauty of my Savior King. If you want to pray that, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Would you raise your hand? I see hands going up. I see hands going up in the back over here, right here. I see hands going up. All over. Lord Jesus, I need you. And I desire you with all my heart. I ask that you would come close. And by the power of your spirit, that you would remove any falsehood, anything that has not been revealed to me by your spirit. Help me to see you even as your disciples saw you, to hear you, to touch you, to come into that relationship of wonder with you. Lord Jesus, be my Savior King. Introduce me to the love of the Father. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. So every week we partake of communion. And communion is a powerful thing. As a matter of fact, our Savior King tells us to do this in remembrance of Him. And as we do it, we proclaim His return. Meaning communion keeps your eyes on the prize. It reminds you you're not made for this world. So this is what I want you to do, second service. If you sense you've been holding on to this world kind of tight, meaning you're nervous about corona, you're nervous about all these things happening, and you're really gone from being nervous to just fear. Fear. I want you to connect with your Savior King through this communion and say, Lord, release me from all that fear. Help me to trust you for my life and with my future. Lord God, I believe that you died on a cross and allowed your body to be broken so that we might live free. God, your blood was shed so that we might have salvation. Thank you.
in Jesus' name. Love you, church. Have a great, great week.